If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah 43. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. The only explanation for the ongoing existence of the nation of Israel, verse 1, is God's sovereign grace, which brought her into existence from nothing, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11, and sustains her. Since she was God's creation, she could find comfort in knowing that no one or nothing can destroy her, not even her own wickedness. Isaiah 43:18 through 25. Many perils symbolized by these words in verse 2 have confronted the Israelites through the centuries. The passage of Moses and Joshua generation through the Red Sea and the Jordan River and the preservation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace illustrate his care for Israel. God is by nature a savior, both temporally and eternally, verse 3 and verse 11. God delivered Israel from Egypt and will deliver her from Babylon and all future exiles, as well as bring her to spiritual salvation, Romans 11, 25 through 27. The Lord will regather to the land of Israel, verses 5 and 6, the faithful remnant of his people from their worldwide dispersion in conjunction with the institution of the Messiah's kingdom on earth. The faithful faithful remnant of Israel, verse 7, will bear the Lord's name and exist for one primary purpose, to glorify him, Isaiah 44, 23. Restored Israel, verses 5 through 7, will have their spiritual eyesight and hearing restored. Isaiah 29, 18. Who among the idolatrous soothsayers could predict Cyrus would deliver Israel from Babylon or make prophecies of any kind that already were fulfilled? Verse 9. Israel's God repeatedly predicted the future accurately. Verse 10, enabling Israel to witness to this, to his truthful accuracy, and thus the reality that he was the only eternal living God. This witnessing they will do again in the millennial kingdom. Joel 2, 28 through 32. We'll begin reading at Isaiah 43, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, 
I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Amen. Please turn with me to the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, we'll read verses 1 through 20. With his crucifixion imminent, Jesus washed his disciples' feet as a final proof of his love and to give them an example of humility and service. In a striking demonstration of love for his enemies, Jesus washed all of his disciples' feet, including Judas's. Jesus' act is all the more remarkable because washing people's feet was considered a task so low it could only be performed by non-Jewish slaves. In a culture where people walked long distances on dusty roads in sandals, it was customary for the host to provide water for foot washing. This was usually done upon arrival, not during the meal. The disciples probably felt guilty that none of them had thought of this. In verse 18, Judas's treachery fulfilled Old Testament topology, a topology in Christian theology and biblical exegesis is a doctrine or a theory concerning the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. Here Jesus cited Psalm 41.9 which dealt with Absalom's rebellion against King David. Judas's betrayal came as no surprise to Jesus, verse 19. Eating someone's bread indicated close relationship, a close fellowship, and Judas raised his heel against Jesus, an idiom that describes betrayal. Not only did Jesus' public foes plot against him, even his own disciples could not be trusted. Jesus' statement here in verses 19 and 20 is one of several references to his omniscience in this section. The I am he, verse 19, as also in John 8, 24 and 28, very likely had overtones of deity. We'll begin reading at John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1. This is God's word. 
Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his iron garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That, was what, that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on the outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash another, wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me, and, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Amen. Open your Bible to the, to the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. A couple of weeks ago, I think it was about the 29th of January, and you'll recognize immediately I sound a little peculiar. Things have been going on, and who knows what's going on, but there doesn't seem to be a fever. It just seems to be a very bad cold, which I used to have with some regularity, but I haven't had quite like this. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I sent a message uh, off the off, off the net from Trevin Wax talking about the church being a family. And people are talking about this, you know, our church family should be a, this. And, and the idea most people have is that of this ideal family and the church ought to be like the ideal family. The problem is nobody has an ideal family. So, so what is it you think the church ought to be like? 
The reality is the church is like a family. And they're not ideal. You just, because they're your family, you love them. And if you, if you didn't read it, you know, and if you lost it, let me know. I'll say that again. But it's, uh, it's something to keep in mind. I look around here, and I know stories about most everybody here. Some are probably even true. <laughs> uh, uh, and there ain't a, there's not a perfect person in the room. There's nobody here that doesn't have problems, that doesn't have issues, that doesn't have things they're concerned about and worries and fears and anxieties and aspirations. And as a family, we work together to grow in our knowledge and love of Jesus Christ and his word. And we allow him, by the power of his spirit, to, to change us all from glory to glory into the image of his son. We're involved in a study of the I Am passages in John. John has at least seven that they, they are kind of emphasized. And if you read books about the great I Am passages, those seven will generally always be laid out. I connected them, I think, at least the last time and maybe other times, all the way back to Moses standing before the burning bush and asking the question, if I go back to Egypt, who am I going to tell them send me? And the Lord says... Tell them the I am sent you. That's who. That's who. It's I am. I am the self-existent God. That's who sent you. And so when Jesus comes along and uses the I am phrases, and in a couple of weeks we'll come to a passage where people are looking for the right person to arrest and kill, and he's going to say, I am he. And when he says that the power of him saying that causes those that want to arrest and kill him to fall down in droves. So it's not just a little thing when Jesus says, I am. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door to the sheepfold. In fact, I am the good shepherd over the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. And today, I am the way, the truth. Oh, no. All right. Things are going to happen here, and just ignore them if you possibly can. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life from John 14, 6. As we read passages, it's important to keep in mind the context of the passage. I was trying to find a, a way to say this, and the best I can come up with in my current state of mind is that context illuminates and enhances understanding. And so the message today, since we, we all know about John 14, 1 through 6, you, we all know, don't let your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me, I'm going, my, my house, in my father's house are many mansions, I go to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and gather you to myself, that, that you might be there with me, and old Thomas said, well, hey, we don't know where you're going, how can we know that? And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the father but by me, so we know the passage. What we perhaps don't fully understand is the context. So I want to lay out the context this morning in answer to three questions. When did Jesus say this remarkable thing? Why specifically did he say it when he said it? So when's, when's one answer, but why then? Why at that particular moment? 
And lastly, why did he say it to them, to that particular group of individuals? And of course, what does that mean for us? So let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of this time together. We thank you for the unchanging, eternal truth that you've given, that your word, that actually gives life and that bears the seeds of eternal life and planted by the Spirit that regenerates our souls and draws us into a living relationship with a self-existent God. We thank you for this passage and for the context it gives. We thank you for those that have gone before that have believed it and helped preserve it through your power and your watch care, and that we can come to this passage today. So, for your glory, Lord, work in and through this passage in our lives, that we may be better disciples, better representatives of you, before a lost and dying world. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. To answer the first question, when did he say these words? Turn back to uh, John 13, 1, the very first verse that Brother Walt read to us. Uh, we read that this was before the feast of the Passover. Well, Jesus had been to Jerusalem, most commentators would say, during his earthly ministry, once he was publicly identified and out preaching and teaching, at least three times. So that doesn't tell us anything in particular, but the next phrase does. Before the feast of the Passover, when he knew that his hour had come. So see, this isn't other trips. This isn't trips when he was a boy or trips previous trips in his public ministry. This is trips when he knew that the hour had come, many times he'd said, well, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Well, it's come. What exactly is that hour? It's the hour, verse 1 continues, when he's going to depart out of this world to the Father. Now, Jesus Christ is the one that Paul, as we studied 1 Corinthians 5, 7 refers to as Christ our Passover which has been slain. Now he's going to this Passover. He's going to it knowing that the hour has come when he's going to depart out of this world and go to the Father. His response to that is the next phrases. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a powerful statement that is. But what does it look like? Well, the first instance, it looks like taking on the form of a servant or a lowly slave who had a primary responsibility to wash the feet of his betters, and everybody was his better. And that's what the illustration meant, that Jesus washed his disciples' feet, all of his disciples' feet. And, of course, when he comes to the close of that and says, you know, you need to do likewise. Well, that was quite a revelation for him to be sharing with that. I want to call your attention to verses 2 and 3. He did this during the meal, but at the point of the meal when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. I mean, that's the downside. 
But he also knew something in verse 3. He knew the Father had given everything into his hands. Another way to say it, he knew he had been given all power and authority. Now he knew that. The disciples didn't necessarily know that. You know when they are going to know it? They're going to know it just before he ascended. They're going to know it at the end of Matthew when he says, All power, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And so you need to go into all the world and make disciples. And you're going to have to, you're going to need to have them publicly identify themselves as disciples of me by being baptized. And you're going to have to teach them everything I've taught you. And you can trust the fact that I'm going to be with you and watching over this whole process until the consummation of the age. Of course, they don't know that then. <coughs> they don't, they don't know a lot of things they think they know at this point. When he finished washing their feet, all of their feet, including the feet of Judas, the betrayer, he says in verse 18, you know that thing about you guys go and do likewise? I'm not really speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen. I didn't make any mistakes. But the scripture must be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. And then there's the, there's the quote that Brother Walt called to our attention. And I know it, you don't know it yet, so I'm telling you this, verse 19, before it takes place, so when it does take place, you might believe that I am here. And then truly, truly, whoever receives me, this is, this is so, so serious, whoever receives the one I send, receives me. Think in terms of the Great Commission. Whoever receives the one, whom I sin receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me in the fullness of time, in a particular place, for a specific purpose. Now we're, we're getting to the, to the when this was said. After saying these things, what's going on within the humanity of Jesus? Jesus is troubled in his spirit. The old, the old versions used to say, our great high priest was touched by our infirmities. Which sounds, sounds really kind of, kind of biblical. But, but what it means is, our high priest is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. I mean, he knows things he's going to say are going to upset those he loves. It's going to cause them worry and anxiety and to be fearful. But of course he has to say it anyway. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 21, one of you will betray me. And I, I really, I'm not going to take the time to go through the little process of them going, well, who is it? Who is you back and forth and. Ultimately, by the time we get down to verse 27, Satan entered into Judas, took control of Judas. And Jesus said to him, 
really letting us know Jesus has known every step of this. What you're going to do, do quickly. And Jesus left, and he did, exa- he did exactly that. He went out, and he did it as quickly as he could. So these things happen. This, this, this statement that we know so well, but we don't necessarily know the context, is happening in the context of that particular time. But these specifics become to the fore in verse 31. When he, Judas, has gone out. So now it's just Jesus and the 11 disciples. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him... God will glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. In other words, things are going to happen now that that you're not going to understand, but it is all to the glory of God. And we know what's going to happen now, and it's kind of hard to get your mind around that unless you know the end of the story. There's going to be a great betrayal. There's going to be arrest. There's going to be some mock trials, about six of them, three Jewish and three Gentile. There's going to be the greatest injustice in the history of humanity in the world perpetrated when the only innocent man is going to be condemned to die. And all the friends sitting around the room here hearing these words are going to run for the hills. That's what's going to glorify God. So as we as we enter into 2024, this remarkable election year, when everything's already upside down, and who knows what's going to happen next. If you worry about it, you can't rest. And if you read people that all they're doing is stirring things up, it'll be worse. You know, there is, there is one that knows what's going on, and he's going to be glorified at the end of it. That's just an application of this text, by the way. So then... Remember, he's troubled in his spirit. But this is the time. This is when these things are going to happen. He says, little children, I'm in verse 33. Yet a little while I'm with you. And you're going to seek me. And just like I said to the Jews, I'm going to say it to you. Where I'm going, you can't come. That may, that may have cut him to the heart, and it will be obvious here in a moment that it did. But don't jump over what he says next. He says, a new commandment I give you. Here's the commandment, that you love one another. Now, Mike's going to be teaching for six months on the Ten Commandments. Now, he's already mentioned the fact there really is only two, and everything's kind of an expansion of that. And now we got a new one? Well, it's, it's got real flavor, let's just say. I, I consulted a commentary from D.A. Carson. The, the Pillar Commentary is a, just a wonderful series. He observed that this, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize it and appreciate it. Just love one another. 
But it's profound enough that most mature believers, if they think much on it, they're embarrassed by how poorly they follow it. The standard of comparison is the love of Jesus, which he's just demonstrated by washing the people's, his disciples' feet, including his betrayer. But that points to a greater sacrifice he's going to make when he gives his life. And his disciples are going to go through that. And that's, that standard of love never entered their minds. The more we recognize how sinful we are, the more we understand how phenomenal the love of the Savior for sinners like us is. And the higher this standard appears. And that's really what it comes down to. And the higher his standard appears, the more we recognize our own selfishness and how how serious that is. If that's the standard, none of us can say, well, I do that to the best of my ability. The old commandments, really, Jesus distilled them down to two. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And love your neighbors yourself. So what's the newness about this? The newness of this commandment is that you love one another just as I have loved you. That's the way the verse continues. You also are to love one another. Now in the light of what Jesus is going to do to demonstrate his love for these disciples, that's the standard. That's the standard. Loving one another as Christ loved us is a privilege, it's a responsibility. If Christians lived out that kind of love before a watching world, the watching world could not deny they were proclaiming there is a reality, there's a reality beyond the common man's understanding that there is a one true God. And the disciples of his son are empowered by something. This is beyond the way people are. Jesus really states that in verse 35. He says, by this, this kind of love, this standard of love, all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have this kind of love for one another. Now, he couldn't have said that before Judas left because Judas actually never was one of his disciples. He went out from among them, but he was never really part of them. It just didn't look like he was. Clearly wasn't a true disciple. So why did he say it then? Because he couldn't have said it before then. But Judas is gone. And immediately then, of course, Simon responds to this in verse 36. He says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, well, where I'm going, you can't follow now. But you will follow afterwards. You know what? And I hope I understand the grammar here. You know what? Peter didn't hear the now or the later part of that. Afterwards. All he heard was, you're going somewhere I can't go. That's not what Jesus said. He said, 
Where I'm going, you can't follow now. But I absolutely guarantee, assure you on the authority of the word of God, you will follow me there later. If he said it that way, maybe what he got through, but I doubt it. If I say it, does it get through to you? I mean, this, this, is the, this is the hope of the believer. And it's not just a wish, a dream, and a prayer, and I sure hope it works out. It's, it's something you rest upon, you rest your life upon. And you give up everything, including your life, rather than give up that. Peter, Peter, of course, doesn't get it at all. Peter says, Lord, why? First word after no that a child learns. Why? Why can I not follow you now? Listen, I'll lay down my life for you. Now we know the story. Jesus answered, really? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster won't crow till you've denied me three times. You really think you got it going there, Peter? But I, I tell you, it, you, you're not there yet. And he, and he, and he talks about something, just a terrible thing that's going to happen with Peter. It's really essential that the terrible thing happen and that Peter come through it and the Lord's doing everything he can to see to it. And everything he can is enough that it all comes to pass for the glory of God. So now we, we know a great deal of context. We know when it happened. We know when it had to happen, why it had to happen then. And now why it has to happen to them specifically. Let not your hearts be troubled. Too late. They're already troubled. All right. Let not your hearts be troubled. He's looking back to, let's just say that conversation with Peter. He just, the fact that he knew as soon as he started going down this road, that all of them were going to get all worked up. But he's also looking forward. He's dealing with the present. In the present, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. He could have said, listen, you're trusting God. Why don't you just trust me? It's the same thing. See, present is right now you're trusting God with your salvation. If something bad's happening, such as I'm going away and leaving these promises that I will fulfill for you, how does that change the fact that you now you don't trust me? And when he says, I'm going away, I'm not just going anywhere. I'm going to a place that's already there. Now that is important. When, when mom and dad leave or, you know, somebody you have a fight with, and they just storm out the door. They're going somewhere too, but you have no idea where it is. Jesus is going to a place, a very specific place. He's going to his father's house. Now, where's that? Well, that's where he lives. That's the abode of God. Is that heaven? Well, yes, but he created the heavens and the earth. So we've got to be a little 
Is it the third heaven? Well, at least we know of someone who went there and could not describe it. Uh, is it the new heaven and the new earth that Revelation kind of in very broad brushes lays out for us? Well, since God's outside of time, it doesn't really make any difference whether it's past, present, or future. It's all the same to God. So the answer is, I don't know. But I do know in verse 2, in the abode of wherever the abode of God is and whatever it consists of, there's more than enough space for everybody who's ever going there. I mean, that's what's being conveyed here. He said, if it wasn't so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? I mean, he's already told them, why don't you just simply just trust me? Don't you know the simplest thing here is to just trust my word? But if you do trust my word, then think it through. Think it through, brethren. If I go, verse 3, and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now I want to work through this a bit. What is this about going and preparing? Is it not ready? I mean, did did God take six days to create everything because he couldn't do it in one? Kind of had to be with us for like six Sunday nights to to have the full answer. No. He's given us time for a purpose. We are creatures that live in time, but we're made for eternity, which is outside time. The going and preparing that he's referring to, if I go and prepare that place for you, he's talking about the process of his going. His arrest, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. He's talking about everything that's going to follow pretty immediately after this. And if he's going to go through all that to prepare that place for you, Isn't it inconceivable that he will not come again and gather you up and take you to himself? Their fear was that he was no longer going to be with them. His answer is, no, you're not getting it. It's not that I'm not going to be with you immediately. It's that you're going to be with me in eternity, forever. Now, of course, you have to have faith. For that to be a comfort. He says, listen, he says in verse 4, you know the way. You know the way to where I'm going. That is a definitive statement of truth to a believer. You know the way to where I'm going. And one of his disciples, Thomas, Thomas, who, when they decided to go to Jerusalem this time, said, you know, they, they're going to kill us there, but I guess we might as well just go and die with him. All right? Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? you got to kind of love Thomas. Jesus responds with, with the verse that we all know. But now we know the context of it. He says, I'm the way. Am I going and preparing? That's going to open the way in a phenomenal sense to you. 
You're going to, you're going to see this. You're going to be a witness to this. You're, you're going to be drawn into this and be such a part of it that you're never going to be the same again. I'm not only the way, as I've been demonstrating with everything I said and did and the miracles and the, the things that happened all around my public ministry from before I was conceived, but through that conception to my birth, to all the, to everything, I am the personification of the Father. I am the, the image of the invisible God. And God is truth itself. I'm not only the way, I am the truth. And I am the life. When Jesus offers up his high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, he defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God. That men know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Want to know what eternal life is? It's knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And then lest anybody doubt or anybody want to offer a well, yeah, but what about other possibilities? He concludes verse 6 by saying, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's one path, one way. As Brother Walt read out of Isaiah 43, I'm the one true God, and apart from me there is no Savior. There is one way. Through Christ Savior, to the man God, Christ Jesus. He's the way to the Father. He represents the Father. And his disciples, those eleven, and as we could read, we won't take the time to in that high priest prayer, those who they write to, and those who read their writings and come to the faith, people like us, are his Many, many generations later, disciples, they all represent the Son. The Son represents the Father. The disciples represent the Son. The message is exactly the same. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of truth the gift of the personification of truth, the gift of the life that comes in knowing the truth, the gift of fellowship with the one who is light and gives light, the gift of being called to a table to celebrate that gift and to know that we are welcome because we are bought, we were loved, we've been called, we've been redeemed, we are sealed. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.